Welcome, everybody. This is Omar Serrato with the Tilted Lawyer podcast for episode 40. And we have uh, a show for you today. Uh, so this week, there was uh, a documentary that released on Netflix called Take Care of Maya. And I just happened to uh, have come home from work and I caught my eye and I threw it on. And it is this show that tells a gripping accounts of how CPS and doctors, stupid people could really put a wrench in a people's lives. And, um, that's what we're going to talk about for today's show for about an hour and a half or so. Um, but at any rate, let's get started. What's up everybody. I'm Omar Serrato, experienced and practicing attorney, fierce litigator, and unofficial commentator on the most popular legal issues of the day. I'm the host of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, joined by Eliana Colon Rosa and the TLP crew, where we break down the human aspects of law that everybody wants to talk about. I've been a practicing attorney for many years, but nothing in this show is or should be taken as legal advice. We're not going to pull any punches. We might even get a little bit dirty, but we want you to join us anyway. And we're back. So, Ileana, um, taking care of Maya, what did you think about that show? Oh, it was so interesting. <laughs> it just, it made me mad, but it also um, brought back some memories of some of the dependency cases that I've worked on. And, I mean, it does go through a lot. It's very real, is what I have to say. It's what a lot of people have to go through. and what's happens and nobody a lot of people don't know that it happens and it's very frustrating so I, you you work these dependency cases right and by the way this yeah. setup is so throwing me off like i feel like you're right there looking at me <laughs> it's it's like uh, it's so distracting like, I'm, like <laughs> I'm used to you just being right there and i can look at you right there um yeah but this was the exact setup that we had like a year ago when we started doing the show you would always be right there we did the, we did our little zoom setup but we are there um because you know it's a far drive and you're, you're getting further along you're expecting and you're about to blow um, any minute now and so yeah um drive. <laughs> yeah this is just a safer setup for now and um but yeah that so the documentary i have dependency cases you have dependency cases we've all had to uh, work our way around the hierarchy of the dependency setup which is you have the dependency judge, you have the attorneys for CPS, you have the attorneys for the minor children, you have the attorneys for the parents, and sometimes you have other attorneys representing other potential biological or um, per prospective parents, I guess you could say. Sometimes you have people representing the grandparents. It is a mess of uh, a yeah. handful of attorneys and a judge on every single case. They're not jury trials. The evidence, the evidence structure of these dependency cases are, it's like Mickey Mouse quote. Seriously, there's, there's not, I feel in my experience in having worked on these cases. So I guess the simplest way that I could put it is when CPS alleges a case against you and they lodge allegations against you, they write up a report and then before anything happens, if they take your children away, before they give them back, it's like, okay, so these allegations are true. So um, do you admit them or not? 
and they make you admit or deny the allegations. Mm -hmm. And um, this isn't exactly how it went down in uh, the documentary, but this is how it happened in California. It was pretty similar. So if you don't admit, then what happens is, all right, well, we'll set it for trial. And that'll be another month or two without your kids. And sometimes or more, more, because we got to gather expert witnesses. You're prepping for a trial to see whether or not you get to keep your kids or not. And meanwhile, your kids have already been taken. And so there could be delays. There could be uh, subpoenas for expert witnesses. There could be uh, necessary evidence that's not going to be ready within such a short period of time. And in the meantime, you're dealing with visitation schedules that are controlled by social workers, CPS essentially, and minors counsel. And um, they all sort of err on the side of, let's just keep the parents away from the children because it's the safest thing to do, which Mm -hmm. is frustrating if you're genuinely not guilty of the allegations that you've been accused of that they've used basis for taking your children. So in the criminal system, it's a lot more humane where, okay, innocent Torres proven till proven guilty, believe that or not, but that's what's supposed to happen. Independency mm-hmm. court. It's literally the opposite. It's like, okay, well, because here's how it goes. Um, at that initial <laughs> jurisdictional hearing where they, they make a finding whether or not the allegations are true. What happens is mm-hmm. it's sort of like a preliminary trial in, in criminal court where in um, preliminary trials or say um, like a, uh, what do you call those, uh, those hearings? The grand jury hearings. Um, they're, they're basically just oh. trying to, they're supposed to be looking to see if there's enough evidence to hold you to answer to the allegations for a trial. Independency court, exact same thing. But the problem with that is as in criminal court, the standard that the, prosecutor has to meet is so low it just has all they have to do is say that look there's just enough evidence to raise questions mm-hmm. that this person did it yes that's all all they have to say is they don't have to prove anything they just have to say well um the questions th- there's questions that they can't definitively prove are false so therefore the allegation should be found true that's not specifically what it's supposed to be with dependency court but oftentimes that's really how it feels because what are you going to say? Like if they're basing the statements off of hearsay statements and minors counsel doesn't want to allow the child, the minor child uh, to testify because of some psychological reason, which goes against your constitutional rights to face your accusers, by the way. Uh, but if they make that finding, then they're relying on hearsay statements and you don't get a chance to cross examine the child to see what they meant. Was that it taken out of context? Was there some other explanation for what you said? Or did you mean to implicate mom or dad? Or was there something else that you were thinking of? You don't even get to answer those questions. You know where, where those questions happen? Outside of the courtroom, under the watchful eye of a CPS attorney. Sometimes we get to tag along and, and, and observe, but most often not because they're trying to protect the children. And so that's the, that's the basis for the judge um, finding whether or not the allegations are true. So if the allegations are true, then the judge has to make a decision. I feel uh, that a uh, reunification plan is in the best interest of the child uh, to find a way to get the children back to their biological parents. Or the judge could find opposite. Well, since he disputed the allegations, clearly he hasn't taken seriously the allegations of the nature of these proceedings and has shown no remorse for what he's done. And so therefore, I don't think it's in the best interest for the children to be reunified. Blah, to be reunified with the parents, and um, we're going to uh, deny uh, reunification services. 
which would be the death now means that you've lost your children. You pretty mm-hmm. much, you don't have very many legal options really after that. So dependency is a nightmare if you find yourself involved in it. And the way in this documentary that uh, the Kowalski family found themselves in the CPS case was just crazy heartbreaking. Um, I will say that the uh, documentary did a really good job of pointing out the purpose for dependency court in the first place. And the purpose of it was to deal with these high level offenders where children were in actual danger, where they were actually being starved, where they were actually um, being exposed to domestic violence, to substance abuse, to physical abuse, where their lives were genuinely in danger. It allowed for a mechanism where um, foster parents or some other parent that could potentially look after the child would be streamlined. Mm to make sure the children stayed safe. The mistake in the legislative decisions that have occurred in the 40 to 50 to 70 years since have given child protective services cavalcade of enumerated powers by which stuff like this could happen, where a rare disease could be diagnosed in the part of a young girl. And because the parents who have been raising the girl since birth have been to various dozens of doctors who have given her different treatments for different things um, where because they're not following one doctor's suggestion it's been suggested uh, that they there's Munchausen syndrome where the mom is doing mm-hmm. this on purpose and they're faking the symptoms and uh, it's uh, on the basis of that they allege child abuse and um, remove the children and start taking over the medical decisions that should have been made by the parents in the first place And uh, it it ends up in this whole thing. And in the case of this documentary, it led uh, to the inexplicable uh, suicide of little Maya Kowalski's mother after she was denied a hug with her child by a judge. And I have some thoughts on that. We're going to get into a lot of that. But just the background of that documentary. Mm Ileana, I feel like I got to move you over here, but I can't because it's going to mess up the scene. So you're going to stay there. (laughs) I'm just looking at you through my screen, but you're looking at me through this one. It's like this weird triangle thing going on. Um, I can't see you, so I don't know what's going on. <laughs> well, nobody needs to see me. Nobody wants to see that. So, um, at any rate, uh, take care of Maya. It's, this, uh, it's the compelling, brand new, gut-wrenching Netflix documentary directed by Henry Roosevelt. It chronicles the... Uh, horrific ordeal based by the Kowalski family that we've been describing. And Mm -hmm. they offer court testimonies, audio recordings, reenactments, interviews. um, And it takes you on this journey of how they got there. So Maya Kowalski, um, whom I had no idea even existed before this documentary that I watched like on Monday or Tuesday, same time that you did. Coincidentally, I I called you, Hey, you want to do a document? You want to do the show on this documentary? Oh, I just watched it. Well, perfect. Um, (laughs) Maya Kowalski uh, was a young girl suffering from complex regional pain syndrome and that was the focal point the entire narrative Uh, and CRPS is what it's more affectionately known but it's a rare disorder characterized by severe pain and mobility issues 
that became uh, Maya's reality. Really, like they said that mm-hmm. it would affect the nerves in such a way where it feel like she was sensitive to touch to the point where it felt like her skin was on fire and it was incredibly debilitating. She couldn't walk, you know, she couldn't do basic stuff. And she was diagnosed around the age of eight, nine, 10 years old, I think it was. So Mm -hmm. in a desperate quest for relief, they detail Jack and Beata Kowalski, um, their journey as they sought treatment, including Mm -hmm. a controversial ketamine treatment uh, that was highlighted by this uh, Mexico doctor. Uh, that prescribed it for her. And despite uh, her going through all of these things, the constant pain, uh, they found uh, that some of the ketamine regimens were working sort of not great. It was, you know, it was questionable and there was a lot of different opinions about what was supposed to happen. Um, Mm -hmm. John Hopkins, the all children's hospital in Florida became basically the epicenter for all of this. It's where that Dr. Sally Smith, the one that um, is, uh, vilified in the documentary where she worked uh, the Kowalski's they had hoped that the hospital was going to take uh, in Maya and serve as a refuge and administer the treatment and that they um, you know there wouldn't be any issues she's safe she's in the hospital she's got ready-made care 24-7 um, but what happened was that Maya's mom well nobody really liked her that much she was very very how would you describe her, Ileana? Karenish, what I would say. She, she was really pushy, and I mean, I have had, had clients like this where they just—I mean, she had a point. Morally, she had a point. She was desperate, but then at the same time, she just didn't want to understand how the process works and how. Her uh, behavior could affect the case further. Um, I remember one in the show when uh, I think she's talking. I remember she she was talking to, but there was somebody that was advising her, and she tells her, "Well, you can either follow the orders and eventually try to see, be able to see your kid, or you cannot follow them, and then not see your kid ever." Like those are your choices. Like, what are you going to do? And then you can hear her like, uh, like, yes. And it's hard. <laughs> I, I can only imagine being in that position. And I, um, I feel for her. I understand her, but I know she's not the most likable when it comes to uh, the court and what the court wants. Because the court just wants somebody to say, yes, yes, I'm going to go ahead and follow your procedures or your orders and not uh, bring up all the things that they were doing wrong. They don't like to be called off. <laughs> well, she was, I mean, she was, she was a, a bit much times on the phone. She frustrated a lot yeah. of people. She frustrated all the nurses, doctors, mm-hmm. and um, they, they, well, they struggled with what to do with her because uh, it was, I mean, we get these clients all the time where they're, they're, they're so riddled with anxiety and they don't have anything to talk about. They just want to talk about, how they feel about what's going on, which it felt like that's what she was doing oftentimes. And she was criticizing the the nurses and she got on their nerves. And so she Mm -hmm. became probably vilified in that office, that, that doctor's office. And every time she calls like, Oh my God, with this lady. And so 
to the point where it didn't matter what she said. It was, you know, they just, as soon as she picked up the phone and you kind of got a feel for it when they were doing these scenes where she was being monitored, what she was saying was being Mm -hmm. monitored by uh, CPS workers or social workers that were there. And every time she would say something, it's like, hey, you need to redirect. Like she's a dog. Yeah. Like she's a four-year-old. They just had no patience with her whatsoever. Um, and she was, I mean, now I'll just say this. As much as I sympathize with her, she was being a bit much. Mm-hmm. And her husband was really doing a, 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 a really good job trying to, he did lose it on her at one point, just saying that she's making everything worse, which. Yeah, she kind of was. There's a point where, look, it's fine if you want to have that kind of, if you have those kind of feelings, but you got to hold it together. Like holding it together is a skill. It's a yeah. skill that you have to develop. And, then, and if you're dealing with stuff like this, nobody wants to hear um, the whiny Easter egg over there constantly in their ear. I don't know why I said whiny Easter egg, but you know what I mean? The little <laughs> barking dog. They, nobody wants to hear that all the time. In the times of crisis, you know, a calm voice, a calm, sturdy voice is best. And she was the exact antipathy of the calm, sturdy voice. She was the loud, screechy voice. And she got on people's nerves. And her husband, who had lived with her, had um, probably gotten used to it. He was used to it, but the world was not used to her. Mm-hmm. And she, she put people off. And so mm-hmm. to that degree, I sort of sympathize with the doctors in that regard. Because, yeah, she was difficult to deal with. I admit, I probably she, she was probably a real pain in the ass. But for what she was <laughs> asking for, I mean, they got to have, they got to find ways to show more empathy than that. Just even just taking temperature of the situation that was going on. She just lost uh, the ability to be with her daughter, whom she's been with for years, dealing with this, with this illness. And she's trying to talk to her daughter every single night and all the stuff going on. All of a sudden, she's being accused of child abuse. Now, a judge is even denying you can't hug your daughter. You can't talk to your daughter without some grown-up that she's never met um, is monitoring the conversation. And then she's censored as far as what she could say. And she's making references to, this is not a Nazi camp. You can't just make us do things. And um, Oh, yeah. Which that would piss anybody off. I mean, I don't, you know, I've thankfully never been in that situation. But I mm-hmm. think what this show, what this documentary highlights is how quickly you could end up in a situation like this. It is really oh, not yeah. difficult. Um, there was an instance where my daughter, um, my youngest, Evelyn, mm-hmm. um, there was an instance where she was sitting in this elevated chair that mm-hmm. fell. It was probably six feet off the ground, and she kicked herself back, and she fell backward and ended up hitting her head on the floor. And then we rushed her mm-hmm. to the hospital right away. And if we didn't have cameras all over the place, to document what happened if she had like a cracked skull or something. And thankfully she was fine. She got an MRI done and um, it was just a really eventful day. Everything was fine. But imagine if she would have had like a skull fracture or something and then it's like, okay, well, there's no other way that got there other than some kind of child abuse. So you're going to jail and we're taking your kid. If I didn't have one on video, you know, I I even had a queued up to show the doctor just in case, because I've seen how those cases go. here is the video showing what happened. And this is, you know, they didn't suspect anything like that. Every, the doctors were great. And then even asked for the video. Like it was, it was completely cool. But in a, if Sally Smith was the doctor, if these other doctors were the ones that were, you know, it, all it takes is one doctor raises suspicion and then mandatorily yeah. they have to report that to CPS. And next thing you know, CPS comes and you rest, you're taking your kids, relatives, 
run with other people that could watch over them in the meantime. And um, that's just mm-hmm. kind of how that works. So for right now, um, going back to that documentary, that was the situation. She had this rare um, disorder. And I'm gonna, let's talk about what that is really quick. Because your child is coming pretty soon. What if mm-hmm. she has some kind of rare medical something that there's no general consensus how to treat? What do you do then? Um, in the case of Maya, this is what it was. So what is CPRS? And they, they did describe it in pretty good detail, but it's, you know, it's a rare chronic pain disorder. It often results in significant morbidity, long-lasting pain. It's more common in women age 50 to 70 and usually develops after direct trauma. Uh, the disorder can be categorized into type 1, type 2, both of which are treated similarly. Uh, the pathogenesis of CRPS involves local inflammation, nerve injury, which is what she had, sympathetic dysfunction, central pain processing, and emotional responses. Autoimmune processes and genetic factors may also contribute to its development. Initial symptoms include disproportionate pain, distal extremity involvement, tropic changes, increased sweating, swelling, hypermia with movement often exacerbating the pain and leading to impaired limb use. I'm getting this all off. Uh, this is my research on what specifically it was. Um, and there's various strategies to treat CRPS. And the choice may depend on the severity of the case. Mild cases, typically, this is the general consensus from everything that I've found, it may not require multi-professional intervention, but severe ones, they often require specialized care. The treatment can include pharmacotherapy. I don't know what that is. I'm assuming that's like a medication. Uh, Interdisciplinary management, psychological interventions, interventional therapies. Psychological interventions is interesting because throughout the documentary, they, they kept on saying that it may be a psychological disorder. They might be imagining the symptoms or okay. you know, something to that effect. Um, Interventional therapies, physical therapy, occupational therapy, pharmacological treatments can include uh, bisophonates and short courses of oral steroids. There's also emerging evidence supporting potential therapeutic benefits of ketamine, memantine, intravenous immunoglobulin, epidural clonidine, aerobic exercise, mirror therapy, virtual body swapping, dorsal root ganglion stimulation. What does that tell you? <laughs> I'm just reading that list of potential cures. You know what it tells me? Nobody knows what the F it is or how to treat it. And there's not a one size fits all approach to it. So in the documentary, she had, um, in, in the documentary, she had different reactions at different times to the ketamine treatment. And they started increasing the ketamine treatment at doctor's instruction. And there was different opinions. Specifically, Sally Smith said, oh, she doesn't need that much ketamine. There's way too much ketamine for a child, even though another doctor disagreed. Where that actually belonged, where that discussion belonged, is between the four walls of multiple doctors, the parents, and that child. But what happened was Shelly Smith believed, because she was so sick and tired of uh, Maya's mother, that, uh, well, mom is exacerbating the symptoms. We got to get mom out of here, otherwise this is going to get worse. Basically stating that part of her symptoms was related to psychological trauma, related to mom's overt control. 
or Munchausen syndrome. So get her out of there. Maybe she gets better. CPS goes in there, assuming that mom's the child abuser and they treat her as such. And the rest goes into, you know, how she, the whole thing, right? So that's how quickly it happened uh, with her. And um, I don't know. What do you think? So what do you, what do you think? Let's just say that you were facing the same, you have this rare, super rare um, disease that has multiple treatments. And you've heard like three different diagnoses from different doctors. And nobody's giving you a straight answer. Nobody knows definitively. There's no common uh, cure or symptoms or guidelines for how to treat it. It's not like the flu. You know, it's not like a, just take a couple of Advil. There's lots of differing opinions. Um, how would you have handled that, Eliana, in, in that situation? Probably the same as they did. I mean, they just looked for different options and they saw one that helped their daughter feel better and they just went with it. I mean, I, that's the goal for her to feel better. And since it's coming from a doctor, I wouldn't really question it too much. I mean, <laughs> I don't think that when they were agreeing to the, uh, to the, um, I guess the course of medicine, whatever, that they had a thought in their mind that this might get them in trouble. They were just looking for answers and for her daughter to feel better. And I would have probably done the same thing. All right. But then what if they come and say, all right, we're taking over because you're being a bit much. What's your response to that? From the, from like the hospital? Yeah. Um, I don't remember from the documentary how many doctors they had consulted before, but I probably would have. It was a handful, yeah. Um, probably would have referred them to the doctors. I mean, they're following doctors' orders. Um, it's not like they're inventing uh, the orders or doing like self-administration of what they think is right for the uh, medicines, the the doses, whatever ketamine to take. Um, I don't know, maybe got a, another opinion because at the end of the day, the hospital's position was just one of the many other opinions of how to treat this condition. And it just didn't match what the parents were doing. Yeah, no. So, well, here's, I think part of it was because ketamine was one of the, mm -hmm. the methods by which they were treating her and mm -hmm. it's a controversial treatment. So. Why is ketamine so controversial? Yeah, so they know about it. Yeah. From the scientific <laughs> evidence, there are concerns about the lack. First of all, there's not a lot of scientific evidence to support the use of ketamine for mental health treatments, especially depression. Um, a lot of studies have potential issues such as selection bias, short follow-up periods. There's lack of differentiation between antidepressant effects and recreational drug effects. Uh, there's also okay. discovery that a metabolite of ketamine rather than ketamine itself may be responsible for its antidepressant effects, which challenges previous beliefs about the nature of its therapeutic effects at all, specific with reference to um, Maya's condition. The other, um, I mean, aside from that, because it's recreationally, recreationally used, there's the potential for addiction and misuse. Um, through a legal medication for anesthesia has been misused as a recreational drug leading to addiction and cognitive impairment. 
its potential for misuse and the risk of dependence and addiction has raised concerns about its use as a regular treatment. Um, there's side effects. There's long-term safety concerns. Ketamine has a variety of potential side effects. It ranges from confusion and nausea to serious risks like cardiovascular instability, respiratory depression, liver injury, cognitive deficits, long-term safety, and the effect of chronic use are also unclear, especially concerning cognitive effects and urological problems. And then there's the cost and the access, um, which is that in certain forms, it's excessively uh, costly. Uh, there, there's different forms of it. it has, uh, of esketamine it has a higher cost than generic uh, 1,4 ketamine. Uh, the particular effects institutions like the VA have to balance that with the ability to. Anyway, there's all kinds of stuff. People are funny about mm-hmm. ketamine because they, they, they look at it as a recreational drug. And anytime there is a recreational drug that has therapeutic effects, then by God, mm-hmm. we can't be having any of that. And that, you know, <laughs> by itself is going to have all this unnecessary controversy aside from, you know, mm-hmm. there's cost concerns, there's side effects, or whatever. And there's differences of opinion. Maybe ketamine works, maybe ketamine doesn't. But what they were doing was giving her these excessively high doses of ketamine, not all the time, just when uh, in certain periods of her treatment when her symptoms were particularly really bad. So mm-hmm. um, let's talk about Dr. Sally Smith. What did you think about her from the doctor? I didn't like her. Well, nobody liked <laughs> her. <laughs> I mean, but yeah. I mean, what do you think about her reasoning? Um. I don't remember her reasoning. You mean like the her position that? Well, she didn't really the, get on. To be fair, she didn't get on to say yeah. a whole lot. They got her on a like a thirty second phone call, or they played maybe thirty seconds of the phone call where she says, "Well, I don't go out there trying to separate kids from their parents." Um, and you're right. Now that I think about it, I don't think she really gave anything about her medical reasoning. She just disagreed about the ketamine mm-hmm. stuff. And then the CPS workers got on there and like, uh, hey, so yeah, um, she's getting better when mom's not around. So maybe it's not the ketamine. Uh, mom's the actual problem. Um, but let's talk more about Sally Smith. So this is her track record. Uh, she's the former medical director of for the Pinellas County Child Protective Services team in Florida. And that they came under fire from investigations that revealed her quick methods of diagnosing child abuse led to dozens of instances where charges were dropped, parents were acquitted, or caregivers were found to be credibly innocent. And that's the head of the Pinellas County Child Protective Team. Smith examines virtually every child funneled to all children's hospitals with suspicious injuries. So this problem, number one, you can't have a doctor that. All right. Here's my first, here's my first issue with the, with the, with the entire setup. Number one, she works for the child protective services team. There's a team dedicated to that. One of my big problems with CPS to begin with, is that they all work with each other under the same cases. They all become disenfranchised, um, calloused to mm-hmm. parents, pretty much, where every parent yeah. that walks through their doors, regardless of the evidence in front of them, is a child abuse. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have doctors, which of course you got to have doctors, but they shouldn't be on a team specifically dedicated to child protective services because then they just mm-hmm. become CPS. And then it's like, oh, but not only just CPS, they become CPS that has the full force of um, being able to make allegations of child abuse. And so much more, that's even worse. So, I mean, uh, right off the bat, a better system might be just, why don't you just rotate in like 10 or 12 different doctors 
And in the case of uh, child abuse, maybe we could get that corroborated by two other doctors, maybe. And it's not just one mm-hmm. person's opinion, especially in cases involving rare diseases where there isn't a general consensus on treatment. It just seems yeah. like common sense, but that's part of the problem uh, with uh, Dr. Smith. So um, prosecutors and law enforcement, uh, they treated her, of course, like her word was gold because she was a doctor. And however, uh, defense attorneys, parents, even child, some of the child welfare, welfare employees complained about her aggressive interrogation tactics used against parents <laughs> and often wondered how she saw invisible injuries that other doctors missed. It's a really good question. She graduated yeah. from the St. Louis University School of Medicine, began working in all children's hospitals in the 90s. She became medical director of the Pinellas County Child Protection Team in 2002 and has held the position for nearly two decades. In 2009, she, along with nearly 200 physicians, sat for the nation's first exam in child abuse pediatrics, where they argued that research in brain injury, fractures, burns, scars, now enable well-trained doctors to reliably distinguish abuse from accident, which seems sketchy at best. I don't know. I'm assuming that they're yeah. talking about skull fractures. And they're saying basically that from the way that the fracture occurs, that they could differentiate. Oh, that's definitely child abuse versus she fell and hit her head on the cement versus she fell mm-hmm. and hit her head on a, a lead pole versus she fell and hit her head on a baseball bat versus she fell and hit her head on the, the little post on her bed. Uh, Cause she's playing mm-hmm. uh, hide and seek with her sister or something like that. Um, those injuries, I mean, I guess it, there's obvious ones where there's multiple skull fractures in different spots, probably child abuse, but where there is one skull fracture that occurred from one, uh, wayward slip and fall. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. If, I'm not going to get into the science of that. I'm not a doctor. I'm just saying it bothers me <laughs> that they've even have this line of thinking where, Oh, if you look at fractal patterns of the of the fracture as it occurred that definitely means child abuse over some other thing because i, I don't know i've seen some really bad cases just in my in my real practice and um yeah you know at any rate according to usa today florida is unique in that almost all child abuse cases are required to be evaluated by one of the two dozen child protection teams in the state each of which is overseen by a certified child abuse pediatrician. Despite the the irreparable damage these families endured, Smith has never faced any consequences. Um, She has actually, she, she, well, she hasn't, but some (laughs) of the litigation that's occurred, there's been two civil suits. The documentary made it seem like, uh, the Kowalskis didn't get any justice because there's this other trial that they have against the hospital. But Shelly Smith actually okay. settled with the Kowalskis to the tune of $1.2 million. So that's oh. been a consequence of how she treated at least that case. So what is she doing mm-hmm. now? Uh, she's still listed on the John Hopkins All Children's Hospital staff page as an independent practitioner. She's also listed on the Bayfront Health staff page, but no details are provided about her role in the health system. Um, so USA Today, they go, they went out and they interviewed, reviewed hundreds of Smith's cases in conjunction with a multi-part investigation into Florida's child welfare system. And it found 
more than a dozen instances where charges were dropped, parents were acquitted, or caregivers had credible claims of innocence yet suffered irredeemable damage to their lives and reputations. And if you remember in that documentary, one guy was in jail for like 20 years. Uh, lots of people went to jail for, you know, significant periods of time. Um, there was an investigation titled Bad Medicine. Um, the network followed the Kushner family, their experience with Smith. Uh, the Kushner family, they were an immigrant family from the Ukraine. They ran a trucking business in Sarasota County. They were accused of abusing their six-week-old son. And the investigation details Smith's early career about how she quickly made a name for herself as a staunch child's advocate who was frequently quoted in local news stories regarding shaken baby syndrome. <sighs> Here's some more on the Kushner, the Kushner story. So they went into labor in July. They went through a complicated labor. And when they saw their son's face, it was blue. They had bruises dotted on his shoulders. Um, William's umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. Doctors unwrapped the cord, but William's life doesn't get any easier because for the next two weeks, he's crying every time he's touched. The pediatrician blames the, Trump, the traumatic birth and sensitive skin. But a month later, Lena noticed that her son is twitching and doctors discovered bleeding in William's brain to rib fractures. You know what that you know you know what it sounds like? Um the Mr. Glass. Who's that that superhero in that movie? Dr. Glass or something like that. Where he can't touch anything because his his bones are made of glass yeah. and breaks. Um so Smith came to examine William, Dr. Smith, the day after the Kushners <laughs> brought him to John Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg. And when she entered the room, doesn't introduce herself, doesn't answer their questions. <laughs> or even really noticed them until she left. And on her way out, she turns to the family and said, this is child abuse and I'm going to prove it. Which sounds like a weird thing that anybody would say, but I, it's a hearsay statement. I, I, I doubt she probably said it exactly like that, but probably something to that effect. Um, two weeks mm -hmm. later, the Kushners are escorted from the hospital where they had stayed by their son's side for weeks by an investigator from the, the Department of Children uh, and Families the department then took custody of William and his sister. Smith accused the Kushners of egregious abuse in family court, stating that the mixture of old and new blood in William's brain proved he had been abused multiple times since birth. She says violent shaking could be one possibility, one possibility. Slamming him on a bed 15 times would be another, or perhaps some other medical condition. Perhaps uh, she could have looked at the charts and saw that he had injuries literally coming out of the womb. You can't abuse a child like that inside of the womb the way that she's suggesting, and yet he was bruised. And so she just, I don't know, what's your opinion of her and her handling, how she handled the Kushner's case? Well, I know it's not uncommon. Um, I was following a very similar case from Puerto Rico where the child is born. The doctor notices in the umbilical cord, apparently there's like a, a specific amount of, vein, of veins in the umbilical cord. And whenever there's more or less veins uh, than normal, it means that the child could have um, some sort of syndrome or uh, special uh, medical need. And the doctor noticed that, but they didn't do any, they just referred the parents like, hey, get that checked out. Well, just, Less than one month after giving birth, the parents take the baby to the hospital 
because she has bruises, it turns out that she has a lot of fractures in her body. And the doctor just says, yeah, this is abuse. They take CPS gets involved. They take the child from the parents. They were very young parents, so um, they were super lost. And they explained the situation. The doctor even explained the situation. Hey, we think which she has that condition of the, well, they call it like glass, glass or crystal bones, uh, that they just break bones, like just by touching her or even looking at her. Uh, and the CPS was like, no, no, like the doctor that we have says that this is abuse. The doctor at the hospital says this is abuse. There's nothing to do. Well, it turned out that they gave the baby, um, they put the baby in a foster home uh, until the case was finished. Not even a week into being in the foster home, the child had another broken bone. They take the child from that foster home. They take it to another uh, facility from CPS. Child again has another broken bone. And now it's like, okay, then who is actually abusing this child? Like, are you going to go ahead and do the testing that the doctor that uh, the health during delivery suggested? And the parents are saying like, hey, we think she has this. Or are you just going to continue delaying this process and just, uh, just, and their position was like, no, like, there's no way, like, this has to be abused. And they just continued delaying the process instead of just doing something so, so simple as to getting those, uh, getting the child tested for that specific um, syndrome. So I know this is very common and it is very sad especially when it comes to uh, these type of, uh, I guess, rare conditions uh, that, I mean, like you said, how, how can the mother like abuse the child in the womb? Like, I don't, I mean, I know it has happened, but it just doesn't make sense to me. And I think her decision just to right away say, oh, call for abuse or say like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and find out this is abuse. She had her mind already made. She wanted just to take this child away from these parents. Well, just the fact that you knew as an attorney, not as a doctor, that there was conditions because mm -hmm. you've been involved in cases where there's this condition where your bones are very brittle. Yeah. And she didn't even consider that that was a possibility. She goes straight to child abuse. Um, mm -hmm. Perhaps she should have her license revoked. I feel like. It's, yeah. it's sort of like anything else. If you're a doctor, I mean, you know of the, the regular conditions, but you also know that there's these rare conditions. And um, just doctors, most of them that I know are very scientific thinking. They look for logical yeah. conclusions. They check charts. All you would have had to do, mm -hmm. do is see that she was bruised coming out of the womb. Perhaps there's some underlying condition there. Because obviously we could rule out child abuse from that point. And what are they, they're not punching mm -hmm. her from inside the room. There's no way that's happening. You could have saw bruises on the womb, I'm assuming. I'm, I'm just going to assume mm -hmm. that it was ruled out when they gave birth, that there was no abuse that had occurred, yet there's bruises here. And now, just weeks mm -hmm. later, there's this other thing, but Dr. Shelley Smith comes in. Oh, no, no, that's definitely a bruise, and I'm, and I'm proving it, and I'm taking your child from you. It feels like, here's what I feel. Shelley Smith strikes me as one of these people that was very mm -hmm. idealistic in life. That yes. she rose to some level of prominence in her profession to such a degree that Child Protective Services relies solely on her. And she is the head of that department. 
where what she has to say is gold. And attorneys mm-hmm. and judges bend at the sound of her voice because she's the doctor and she's the one that she relies upon. So she's no longer has this natural barrier where, oh, maybe other people have other opinions. It's no, no, whatever you're going to say, we're going to follow. And she did that for mm-hmm. long enough and to the point where now she is God. And she walks exactly. into a room and she sees what she sees and her mm-hmm. idealistic framework of thinking, which has never matured because of lack of being tested in her profession. Well, um, she became what she became, which is this person that jumps to conclusions without any uh, semblance of the scientific method that may have saved these people from the ordeal that they were put into. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, there's the Kowalski's claim. Um, but Smith's claims, so they fell apart when they, when they questioned her about the Kushner stuff. Um, her claims mm-hmm. fell apart uh, from Kushner's lawyers who forced her to go back and probably read the charts. Um, there was mm-hmm. a linear bruise. It was determined to be a rash that Elena had shown to William's pediatrician in a recent visit that was likely caused by the straps of his car seat. According to the pediatrician's testimony, pediatrician also stated that the rash was so small they wouldn't have noticed it had Alina not pointed it out. You know what she sounds like? One of these parents, when they come back with scratches, oh my God, he came, my son came back home with bruises on his knees. I have no idea where he got those from. That's obviously abuse. I had one of those cases this month, as oh, opposed to yeah. was playing in the backyard and the, in the dirt and stuff. Um, so I the, had one. <laughs> yeah, no, we get those cases all the time, right? So the attorneys in the Kushner case, uh, they also asked the injuries suffered from his birth trauma could explain his current injuries. And Smith responded by saying she had only partially examined his birth records, only partially examined his birth. records. Wow. You know what that's like? It's like when you're in trial and you forgot to do a background check on your, uh, on, on your client, who's going to be the star witness in your case. Come to find out opposing counsel just pulled up. Hey, um, so, did you guys know that she had a, a, a federal charge for perjury like a year and a half ago for the very exact mm-hmm. same time? It's exactly like that. An, an incomplete analysis. So, she's basically admit, admitting to professional malpractice. How else could you take that yep. if you're not going to read the charts? Um, California radiologist Dr. Susan Gutnick argued that Williams' hemorrhages were rebleeds from birth trauma, not from shaking, according to USA Today. Gutnick argues that Williams' rib fractures weren't two to three weeks old, but were closer to six weeks old around the time of his birth. The judge sided with with the Kushner's attorneys, citing the state's inconsistency of testimony and failure to look into the circumstances of Williams' birth. All right, so isolated incident, right? Well, no, because there's the Kowalski case, obviously. And Smith accused her of, of, of Munchausen syndrome by proxy which if you were unaware, it's a rare disorder in which a parent fakes a child's illness for sympathy or gain. Her family members are now suing Smith and that's already been resolved. Uh, they settled 1.2 million from the Smiths to the Kowalski family. Um, there was a guy named John Stewart, not the famous one. Um, he was a Marine Corps veteran. He spent 300 days in jail on Smith's allegation that he killed his girlfriend's son by throwing him repeatedly against a soft surface. Prosecutors dropped the charges after a neurologist contradicted Smith's findings. Um, there was another case from uh, regarding a lady named Tara Brown. She underwent three grueling rounds of in vitro fertilization to conceive twins, 
with her physician husband. She was accused of inflicting countless fractures on her six-week-old infant, but the charges were expunged after another doctor diagnosed from a rare bone disorder. So in all of these cases, it, it just seems to be a case of incomplete research on Smith's part. Mm-hmm. Yet she's allowed to be the, the, the sole authority on whether or not mm-hmm. abuse exists. Now you could say that, well, I mean, happy ending because they all won their cases against her. Well, not everybody. How many cases, how many cases did she diagnose as child abuse where they didn't have mm-hmm. the wherewithal to hire counsel that was going to stem the tide against Shelly Smith's words, those courtrooms. And mm-hmm. how much damage has she done because she refuses to read the charts? Because she refuses to consult with other attorneys, which brings up, I guess the broader point of this whole thing. Um, how do, how do you even fix something like that? How do you fix something that appears to be so broken? Like what would be your suggestions? How do I, how do I do it? What do you think? I mean, I will say definitely have like a third party kind of, a not supervision, but like, audit or consultation or something like that so that there's not only her opinion and her position as being the only one that is being taken care of and i mean of course i would just fire her but i mean that doesn't fix everything because there's a lot of people like her out there and i know and it's not gonna definitely um fix it all there's also the people around her that also um support her so uh, it just needs training some third party and if they don't follow them just fire them i mean i would just fire her based on her um record but <laughs> that's just me why don't we let's talk about dependency let's talk about dependency court because i think if well first of all let's wrap up what happened with the lawsuits here's what's going on with the with the lawsuits um the Kowalski family, they, they won um, a security settlement of $2.5 in December of 2021. I don't even think that the documentary had mentioned it. But it was a lawsuit against Dr. No. Smith and the Suncoast Center. And um, they ended up settling. Dr. Smith kicked in 1.25. Suncoast Center kicked in another 1.25. That case was over. Um, but the mm-hmm. pending trial that they were talking about in the documentary, where they were being so dramatic about... Um, Oh, the kids are being a bit much. I mean, I sympathize, but it was like, oh, when they were going through that whole um, continuance hearing and uh, Mm -hmm. the judge was like, so the appellate court ruled that we don't have a decision on punitive damages. So how are we going to go forward? And it's like, okay, so we don't know how we're going to award damages. They got a ruling from up top. So of course the thing was going to get continued. And then the the children Mm -hmm. were just, I mean, the dad was cool about it, but the children were so um devastated by it i don't want to stay over the top i don't want to say that they're but i don't know i feel like the cameras being there might have played a part in all of that just the whole tenor of that Mm -hmm. documentary the end um so at any rate that trial is scheduled for september of 2023 and i'm sure they're probably going to end up settling that case they don't have good uh, recourse um against the merits of those charges so we'll see what happens with that um so the 
broader questions, systemic issues, with the healthcare, child uh, welfare system. Let's just talk about dependency court. For I have, okay. I don't have a good relationship with CPS, specifically because of the cases that I work on. Now, here, here's mm-hmm. what I'll say. You have the ground frontline soldiers with CPS. Those are the social workers. Those are the ones that go and do the investigations. For the most part, they're pretty good at discerning bullshit when they see it. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, obviously they're not perfect, but they're not the ones that you ever confront in the courtroom. They get to testify and things like that on occasion at trials. But they go in and they investigate the claims. Now, the, in the social workers in the documentary, there was it, was, it was one of these things. So upon Dr. Smith's recommendation, they make this finding against uh, Maya's mom, Vieta, that she is Munchausen uh, by proxy or whatever she said. And as a precautionary measure, a measure, they instituted these uh, protectionary, keep mom away, parents away, and see what's really going on. But I noted that the entire process from the, those findings to the time that it got resolved and that everything was dropped against the Kowalskis took three months, mm-hmm. three months, okay. which is a relatively short period of time. If I'm okay. relating it to California dependency cases. Mm-hmm. So three months, we investigated it. There's nothing here. We're dropping the case. But in that time, obviously, that's what they based the whole documentary. Okay. You have your social workers. They're the ones that investigate. Upon the judge's orders, those initial orders, which are pretty much ex parte, meaning that there's no arguments presented. This is what we think is what's going on. And it's based on the, the recommendation of doctors. And even the judge in that hearing, and I noted mm-hmm. that, now, the Kowalski's attorneys were doing a really good job advocating for their, their clients, and she was screaming at the judge saying that this, these are decisions that need to be decided by parents and their doctors. It does not belong in this courtroom, and she was going off. She's making really good argument, and the judge okay. said, hey, tone it down, counselor. I mean, but very respectfully. I'm respectful <laughs> of her argument. Um, and you could tell that his hands were tied. He said they're, they're trying to make medical arguments. And he basically said, I have one doctor telling me one thing. I have another doctor telling me another, mm-hmm. essentially telling everybody that I can't make the call here without having an evidentiary hearing or trial. That's going to take some time. That's what you and I had talked about at the very beginning of the show at the jurisdictional mm-hmm. hearing. So then um, there was this last request. And granted, this was not this. In the, in the timeline of that three-month period, it was probably a month or two after the initial orders were made, those emergency orders, right? Yes. But then there's the big request from mom. She just wants to go and give her daughter a hug. And the yeah. judge basically says, I'm afraid not. He wasn't trying to be mean about it. It's just like the logistics of me making that order, um, you know, and the scope of everything that's going on. I don't think it's necessary. And he's probably thinking... We're going to have this all sorted out within a month, within a couple of weeks, maybe. Um, just let's hope there's, it's not necessary. Right? I understand he's trying to be empathetic. His tone was very empathetic, but you know, mom freaked out and she passed out yeah. there in the courtroom. And, um, you know, what happens next is, you know, the, the big, uh, I guess the point of the documentary, she ended up uh, hanging herself in the garage and she's found there. And, they make it seem uh, like 
Dr. Shelly Smith was to blame, which she was. She certainly had a lot of blame, but mm-hmm. I could also say that her reaction to everything that happened was not the normal reaction no. that you would typically but. see from a parent in that situation. She had mm-hmm. some issues dealing with trauma, with anxiety, with depression. She probably had. She probably could have used a good therapist that might have prescribed some kind of medication that would have calmed her down a little bit because she was dealing with extreme something. Um, Yeah. But, you know, the actions that she took, um, they they made it, they they asked a question. What if the judge just granted a request? Would it have been different? Oh, maybe, probably, probably. But she Mm -hmm. was at her wit's end as it was. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to say that as much as I sympathize with mom, just... You know, dad was going through the same thing and he's trying his best mm-hmm. to try to hold it all together. Even through, man, that, that guy's been through a lot. Um, wife yeah. commits suicide. Um, his daughter is, is stricken with this uh, debilitating illness. Children are, are, have just lost their mom. And he just had CPS accuse him of child abuse throughout the entire thing, throughout the uh, most egregious of circumstances. Uh, he kept it together pretty well. But him and his wife mm-hmm. were the same. And she did not have his ability to reset. She had one speed and one speed only, and it ultimately led to her demise. But um, does that absolve the dependency court of how things were handled? No, because they've chosen a system where they have empowered a doctor like Shelly Smith, who is, do we even know that she's a good doctor? Like, what are her credentials? Because you have people out there that are on the front lines that seem to know a lot, hell of a lot more that we were talking about regarding her condition yeah. and the re- interaction between what she was on and her medications uh, than that mm-hmm. Smith character did. Uh, but yet, this is the one that they rely on. And is, is one doctor good enough? Well, for most cases, I guess. But should it be in the instance of an extremely rare condition with no general consensus? Probably not. So the other, so we talked about the frontline soldiers. They, they're just basically reporting what they find. But then you get the, the attorneys for the social workers for CPS, whom I hate the most. Because they sit in that dependency courtroom every day. And you know how it is when you walk in, at least in California anyway. You walk into the San Bernardino to um, the one up in L.A. where they have next to Cal State, uh, whatever it was, the, the Edmonds Children's Center or something like that. You walk in and they sit there all day. They do all their cases all day in front of the same judge, in front of the same people. They act like they own the place. And if you're an outside attorney because you have a career outside of dependency law, um, you're an outsider. So you're treated as an outsider. Um, they have their own special procedures and they're really upset with you if you don't know, oh, I was supposed to put my name on this whiteboard. It's not even my whiteboard. Why would I just assume I could do that? And so they get yeah. mad at you for not knowing their um, localized rules. And um, they treat you and talk to you as if you're bothering them. Um, they don't hear any of your arguments. They've already decided long in advance what they're going to do with this case. They've written down. This is what we're going to do. This is the recommendation. Are we going to go against the recommendation because we have no evidence? No. And so you're not going to get anything done with them whatsoever. Um, your best hope is to maybe rely on the children's attorney, but they're not much use either. You know? yeah. So you have this disinterested. Gosh, I remember one CPS case that I worked on um, a couple years back, we walked in there and it's like the CPS worker was Darth Vader. 
just always had a scowl on her face. And she would talk with a smirk like she's being just, she's trying to be condescending to me, attorney, Mm -hmm. presenting argument for my client who knows the law just as well as her, if not probably better, because I practice in a multitude of different, and I don't know that. I'm just talking shit. But point is, the point is that she just makes these assumptions. Um, and she was an older lady. She, she resembled a lot of the main people that were um, the characters in this documentary. And no, they're not going to listen to you. And if you want anything, you're going to have to argue it in front of the judge. And that takes time to put together. You're not going to make arguments and the judge is just going to get rid of all these recommendations. The recommendations are already to separate child and, and, and mom. And then unless they're willing to do this reunification plan, let's talk about that. There's this one instance in the documentary where uh, Beata, Maya's mom, is talking with, a, a, I guess, a parent advocate. And they're basically mm-hmm. telling her to just do what they say. There's no mm-hmm. sense in fighting it. And they even told her, you can fight it and be separated for a long time or not fight it and do what they say and be separated for a short time, which is exactly mm-hmm. how they played out because the entire separation lasted for literally three months and then it was done. Mm-hmm. But the reunification process, it's, it's, it's basically take these parenting classes, take an anger management class, we're allowed to drug test you every other week or so or, and, and at random, sometimes more, sometimes mm-hmm. less. Um, mm-hmm. And you could only see your children for specified periods of time. And then you have to admit that what you did was wrong and you have to acknowledge mm-hmm. that what you did was wrong. And you know, all of this stuff, they basically, you have to admit guilt, to the allegations, which is one thing. Um, and that's how you get on the reunification plan, which puts you on the path towards being reunited, uh, reunified with your child. That's the system. That's the, apparently the same system they have in Florida. That's the system that we have in California. Um, mm-hmm. And is it messed up? Yeah, it really is. And in the instance that there's a false allegation against you or your spouse um, and you're happen to be married, if you admit the allegation, well, then it's like, well, if you're admitting these allegations, then we're not giving you, you your kids back unless you divorce your wife or you divorce oh, your yeah. husband. And they'll tell you with a straight mm-hmm. face. No, there's no therapy. There's no anything. There's no, I promise I won't do it again. Um, you've admitted to the allegation. So it's not safe to return the child knowing that those, now we have to assume that those allegations are true. And the allegations could be like a corporal punishment. You beat the child with a whatever because uh, they saw a bruise or a scratch and there's different opinions. Well, if you've admitted that, well, we can't send the child home now because now you've just admitted to corporal punishment, physical abuse and violation of whatever. And so you you want your, you want your son back. You want your daughter back. Divorce your partner. And then the judge will say, and then you'll even make the argument. I've seen people in pro per make the argument. They're literally telling me I have to choose between my children or my wife. And then the judge will be like, yep, pretty much. Mm -hmm. That's how that works. Um, So what's it going to be? They will put you on the spot like that. Is it an evil system? Yeah. Is it effective? If there's genuine cases of abuse? Yeah. I'd imagine it was designed uh, to protect children from actual genuine child abusers. The problem becomes when you get in this gray, these ambiguities where you have people that don't know what the F they're talking about making definitive decisions um, about medical stuff when there's multiple opinions and we're just picking one at random and then putting these people through all of this stuff. Now, 
I just told you that, right? And if you're my client, you're going to hear that story from me in my office, not on this show, but I'm going to tell you exactly like that. And so now I'm going to say that you can fight if you want to, and I'll fight as hard as you want me to. Um, or we'll just say we admit the allegations and we want to go with the reunification plan. I'll have my kid back in six months. And they'll ask me, what's the risk? Well, the risks are that they, you're found guilty anyway, and that because you didn't uh, take these charges seriously, um, they don't offer you reunification, which by, I admit, is not commonly what happens. Um, no. But there is a reality to that. Uh, if you're found guilty of the allegations, then, well, you have to tell them that you, they have the option to give you reunification or not. And just that very threat of potentially losing your children forever is not enough to gamble. And people will just say, oh, well, screw it. I'll just take the plan then. If they're, that's what I'm going to get anyway. Because you don't mm-hmm. get a jury trial, and it's literally by a preponderance of the evidence by which they have to, uh, they're, they're going to decide, which is a very low measure. It just means that mm-hmm. it's more likely than not that you are guilty of the allegations that they're saying. Um, so it, it sucks. And it's a shitty system, but it's the one that we have. And um, is it broken? Yes. How do we fix it? I don't know. But if we're starting from the medical perspective, I'd imagine one way is to not have one staff member solely dedicated to uh, child abuse cases because they're going to become jaded and they're going to mm-hmm. lose their objectivity and they're going to forget that, oh yeah, I used to be a practicing doctor and there's this whole medical world about all these multiple possibilities of what it could be. And if, you know, sometimes when you get older, you just don't have the energy to do all that research. And so you say, oh, yeah. obviously child abuse without any, not even so much as looking at the initial charts about what happened to the childbirth. And this is, this is the person that we're relying on. It's an easy fix for that. Just find a panel. Just get a panel. A panel. Of, if, if you're going to dedicate somebody, then make it a panel of like five to seven to 12 to 20 doctors or rotate them in and out. But don't just stick them in this, uh, this, this one position where they're going to become jaded and calloused over the course of many years of probably seeing um, these uh, heartbreaking cases one after another and uh, calling it, all right, well, we got something in place at least. Um, from a judge's perspective, you remember we were talking about had that one, well, this one judge, I, I went in chambers with him and he works on these dependency cases. Okay. And he told me from his perspective, his biggest fear is that, you know, you give the children back to the parents and then something happens to the kid and you find out about it later. That's always, mm-hmm. um, his biggest fear and what mm-hmm. he guards the most against, which is fair because Imagine that you give the parents the benefit of the doubt. That one time that you give the parents the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And then they go back home, and that's the case of Gabriel Hernandez. It's, and I've heard that there has been some judges that have retired and have not been able to continue practicing because they learned that they made a decision and something happened to the children later when the decision was to return the children to, I don't know, I guess the abuser. Who ended up uh, doing all all of the damage, and it's very sad. It's it's hard. Is it the decision of the judge to like make that decision based on the few information that they have in front of them? At least in the penalty court, it is hard. <laughs> it is a lot to put on on just uh, one person, and then just using. I don't think they they give the judge enough in most cases the uh, 
enough information for them to feel like, okay, yes, this is what I'm gonna do. This is feels right, and this is no doubt the best option. A lot of them, they're just like, let's just wing it, and this is I don't know, fifty one percent better than the other. <laughs> it's like um, I, I don't envy being a judge. I wouldn't want to be a judge in a dependency case. Um, as attorneys, we get the option of turning down cases. I had one case where some guy, some couple was desperate because they just lost their kids. And then I, I asked them, what was the medical finding? There's multiple skull fractures and the kid had ingested marijuana somehow. Um, okay. And they were saying it was because he fell off the bed. And then I remember telling my assistant, you know how many times my kids have fallen off the bed and how many times they've ended up with, it's not that high for one. And um, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if it was a bunk bed or not, but ingesting marijuana, you either fed it to them or they, they ate it off of the floor or they got into it somehow. Mm-hmm. That's just too many red flags for me. I just wish that family, you know what? Good luck to you. Um, you got an uphill battle and uh, you're probably not getting your kids back anytime soon. Is exactly what I told mm-hmm. you. But I'm, no, I'm not taking your case. Number one, because I thought that they were probably guilty. And so if somebody could represent them, it shouldn't be me. Uh, if I'm already thinking that off the bat, you know, they deserve somebody that believes their story. Yes. Um, but no, mm-hmm. I refuse to take that case. But judges don't get that. They they yep. have to decide these cases. Um, and I couldn't even imagine. I, I send a child back to their parents who promised up and down that it wasn't abuse and it was certain whatever. And they've learned a lesson and jumped through all these hoops and they got their kids back. And then it's this huge, emotional, happy scene in the courtroom and the children are finally given back to the children's arms and everybody claps. You know how they do stand up and clap in dependency court. They do that. Then they come to find out two weeks later, all the children's died because of a brutal um, assault by the mother because she couldn't handle it. She had major depressive disorder and she was on substance abuse again. And because nobody was checking up on her, uh, she just lost it. Uh, decapitated her child, which is an actual case. Oh God. Imagine the, uh, um, your, your feeling is going to be, uh, the, that blood is on your hands. And in those cases, they usually, in the news, they always mention, oh, this judge made this order. Like they describe the person by yep. name. And, and they're vilified. And it's like, come on. I mean, there, I've seen some cases where it's like, okay, the judge really made a bad decision. Uh, like all the information was there. Um, and they just didn't care. But there's a lot of them that, at that moment, with the information that, that they had in front of them, they did make the best decision. It's just that they can't really, um, what is it that, uh, Paul, um, they can't really see the future. And in some cases, these parents behave like they're angels in court and during the process. And you think they have been rehabilitated and you're like, okay, there's hope. They did everything that um, we ordered them to, but at in reality, they're just really that full that have other plans. And as soon as the, they get the children back, it's like back to their uh, bad behavior and abuse. And As soon as they're I mean, out of the watchful eyes of the court, everything goes back to normal, the way it was going to be. Uh, I can't tell you how frustrating that is as an attorney. I'm just going to say, oh, yeah. from <laughs> an attorney's perspective, I hate dependency cases because... Yeah. It's hard for me to believe the parents mm-hmm. sometimes because I'm a parent. Sometimes the things that they say to me doesn't add up. Now, if it's these medical cases, those, I mean, I could say, I could just follow the breadcrumbs to 
uh, on the medical mm-hmm. documents. You have rare illness. It's been diagnosed. There's multiple differing opinions. I mean, I would have more sympathy for a case like that. But in the case of like multiple skull fractures and ingestion of marijuana, uh, no, man, I'm not taking your case. In what world do you keep marijuana around your, or much worse, uh, fent- fentanyl or something like that? I've seen those cases uh, as well. And they, they're out there and people are, it's, it's rough for children. It's really rough out there for children. There's some crazy parents out there. Oh, yes, it is. It is. And like you, uh, just like you have had to, um, to uh, refuse or reject some cases because their parents' position is just not right and they don't get it. They, they don't understand. And I mean, I'm not going to be able to defend somebody like that. Like, for example, I remember doing a consultation for uh, this uh, woman that opposing party was being charged or he was being investigated uh, for sexual abuse and they were telling her, you need to either move out of the home or he needs to move out and the children cannot be in contact with him. It wasn't even the father, it was like a step parent or something like that. And from everything that she told me that the child was doing, and this is this goes back to our last um, episode, the child was doing a lot of sexual things oh. and uh, it was, she was very little, like four years old. And it was obvious that she has seen or been exposed to something and the child was always with her or the stepfather. And I was like, no, like I think there's something going on. And she just, it, she felt that it was necessary to stay with this person just because this person was the only one that had um, uh, supported her uh, yeah. with a child, like the biological uh, father didn't do his part. And she had like really, I guess, strong feelings for this person. But I told her in consultation, if they're telling you that, and based on what you're telling me that the child is doing, you either have to prove that she, she's getting those behaviors from somewhere else, or you're going to have to follow the orders, but I can't really represent you just to try to keep you guys together as a family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comes, I've told. Comes first. I've had, <laughs> um, I've had that exact same, that, that exact same conversation with um, another client of mine. Like, uh, she was married to a creep. They weren't even married. They were just like a boyfriend. Maybe they were engaged. I don't know. But he, um, was sexually abusing the daughters, physically beating up uh, the eldest child. Um, and they initially came to me to represent him for his criminal case. And then in <laughs> talking to them and talking to them, uh, I found out there was a dependency case. And then I kind of pulled her aside and is like, you want to get your children back? You're going to have to get rid of this guy. Uh-huh. And then she's like, Oh, uh-huh. I know. And then I just, I, 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 cause I got a hold of the report, the dependency report uh-huh. and what they were saying. I was asking her questions. She was confirming or denying certain things. And then uh-huh. I said, listen to me. He's probably going to jail for a long time because there was a pending. I don't even know what happened in the criminal case, but I said, he's probably going to jail. But okay. if you try to stay with this guy, you're never going to get your children back ever, 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 ever. And it was a struggle. And even when I told her that she's like, okay. And she's like, I'll do whatever you say. You know, I, I, I will listen to my attorney. All right. Well, come to find out we're six months into the reunification plan. 
in <laughs> CPS. Um, not even CPS. She got mm-hmm. arrested. Oh, with her boyfriend, with that guy. And then um, CPS didn't know, didn't know anything about it, but they were together. Mm-hmm. And um, some, there was some restaurant, he caused a scene or he, I don't know, threw a tantrum and then the police arrested mm-hmm. him. And then she was in the police report. And I just, are you effing kidding me right now? Are you serious? Are you serious? And I had this whole conversation like, look, you pay me a lot of money to give you legal advice and you're trying to get your mm-hmm. kids back, but you don't even respect yourself enough to, I, had this, I gave her this, I lectured her like I was her dad. And I was like, you have the, look, you know what? You don't need me. I will drop you as a client if you don't do exactly what I tell you to do right now. And if I hear about this one more time, I swear to God, I will withdraw. And uh, she was all teary eyed about it. And eventually, um, I hope she learned her lesson. But I mean, she ended up getting her kids back and she moved on and she moved to a different uh, city house. I assume that she ended up getting a new boyfriend. Maybe she did. I don't know. It doesn't matter, but she got her kids back. Um, but yeah, that's the frustration. Those are the kinds of cases that we deal with. And so when you're dealing with that kind of stuff, I could see how you could be calloused and just unavailable oh, yeah. for um, somebody that genuinely was not guilty of something and had mm-hmm. cogent remarks to make. about. It. So, which is why I say you got, you can't stay in dependency court your whole career. You just can't. And a lot of the CPS no. attorneys, they live there. They've been there for years. They're tired. They look miserable. Um, and it's like this whole, you know, the Stanford project over there. Like they walk in they, and they act like they're the judge. I kid you not. The last time that I was in the Edmonds courtroom, um, the CPS was scolding the judge because she, the judge got something wrong. And the judge was like, oh, yes, I apologize. I don't, I don't know what got into me. It's like, are you kidding me? What oh kind of Mickey God, Mouse courtroom all- is this? Where am I right now? <laughs> I was appalled. I was appalled by the whole thing. Um, I didn't even get into all the questions that I had sent you, Liana, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter. I think we answered a lot of them. Stuff. We've been oh, yeah. going for like Thanks for talking about that. Um, this was the, the, the curious case of uh, Maya Kowalski, who lost her mother to suicide after curious findings by CPS based on wayward diagnosis by one uh, Dr. Shelly Smith. It was Shelly, Shelly something, Shelly Smith. Um, something, yeah. But yeah, it was, it was a crazy documentary. I had to cover it when it was on. I was like, oh, this is, this is an easy one. We're definitely doing this show. Um, so in the coming weeks, um, if everybody who, everyone out there who's still with us, if you're still with us, if you've listened to the whole show, um, thank you for listening, but we have, I'm going to talk about the show a little bit. Okay. I've made some observations. So I did a video on father's day, just a small, short one about how to, uh, win your case for the holidays, how to stay cool, how to not freak out, you know, encourage the other parents to see the other, you know, I did one of our old school videos, you know, we're, we're actually giving helpful advice, helpful tips to win your family law case. Nobody gave a shit. So, <laughs> I think we're gonna just have to settle for talking about these uh these true crime stories these uh these documentaries these uh interesting cases that people want to talk about which I don't mind doing that we got fourteen hundred subscribers people are um mm-hmm. following us for a reason and the, the channel's only gonna get better uh, 
better, bigger, all those things. Um, mm-hmm. For if you guys don't see Ileana in the coming weeks, uh, well, <laughs> she's got a significant. You want to tell everyone what's going on, Ileana, or, or, or do you want to not? I'm heavily pregnant. <laughs> yeah, she's very heavily pregnant. She could pop at any moment to the point where, um, I, you know, she wanted to do it remote. I said, that's probably best. Because I don't want you bursting on the couch right there, you know, mm-hmm. having a, a whole medical incident. Uh, but no, Ileana has been dealing with this pregnancy. That's why she's been in and out on the show for, you know, months. Um, mm-hmm. So she's going through this whole thing and we're wishing her the best. But if she's not on the show for a period of weeks, just know uh, she's got her hands full yeah. and she'll be back when she's ready. When she's ready. Um, I'll be back with oh, paralegal yeah. helping me out I w- for screening. <laughs> I'm hiring a new paralegal. I'm going through that whole process right now. And um, <laughs> I got to make certain decisions going forward. But I'll tell you a funny story uh, to end the show. So this, this, uh, this past Wednesday was my mom's birthday. And we were all in the backyard. My mom has a swimming pool back there. And my four-year-old and my three-year-old um, decided when nobody else was in the pool, they just got out of the pool and they had gotten fully dressed and they have all their clothes on. Um, and they decided to jump back in into the jacuzzi and I was sitting on the chair and I, I got up to make sure they didn't drown or something. Um, but they're mm-hmm. already in. It's like, well, they jumped into the little first step of the jacuzzi and then, um, they're just kind of walking around and I'm thinking in my head, my kid's totally going to jump in right now. She's going to jump into the middle. I'm going to be so mad if I have to jump in full clothed, fully clothed. And sure enough, not 30 <laughs> seconds later, my, my daughter lunges into the front. And she's winding her arms from like a couple of seconds. And I'm thinking that as I'm jumping into the word, God damn it. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't deep or anything. I just, I was like maybe knee deep. And then I pulled her out of there. And as I'm pulling her out of the water, she's like, daddy, you saved me. It's like, Oh, oh. yes, I did. <laughs> and I pulled the other one out. It's like, no more, pull, no more pull for us today. <laughs> well, oh, if you're wondering uh, what happens you to can- when you have a, uh, um, Here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be faced with these situations. It's going to be your kid. And this funny thing that happens when you're a parent, you know what's going to happen, but it's like your brain um, acknowledges that what you're about to do sucks, but your brain goes Mm -hmm. on like autopilot and just lunges you into the pool after your child. There's no thinking. There's not even a consideration. It's just like, oh, well, this is what's happening right now. There's nothing I could do about it. I could not have resisted Mm -hmm. that urge if I wanted to. My wife is like, you know, you could have just like reached her hand and grabbed her. Like maybe I could have, but I didn't want to take the chance. I don't know. I just, I saw her go in. I jumped in. So. <laughs> That's funny. That is my, oh, uh, that, that is my funny story for, uh, to end the show on. And, uh, you could look forward to many more moments that your, your kids are going to grow up and they're going to be on the playground and you're going to be like helicopter parent watching over them. Cause you don't want them to trip and fall on the monkey bars or something. But that'll mm-hmm. go away. I'm just going to say, um, you, got, you got your work cut out for you. But congratulations oh, yeah. on all of that. It's, I mean, you're gonna, it's, it's, a, it's a positive thing. Just know there's challenges and you're going to have to get used to it. And you will. Uh, no doubt about that. But um, for all of our loyal, loyal followers um, who are wondering, that's what's going on with Ileana. And that's what's coming up on the horizon. I'm going to have to bring in some um, special guest. Host. Yes. <laughs> I'll bring in my brother again. My brother's really good on the show. 
except the last time I put him on the show, um, I had the camera angled for you. And then he was sitting there mm-hmm. and it cut off his hairline. It looked like he didn't have any hair. And I was like, <laughs> just making fun of his hairline on the previous week. <laughs> so, I don't know if yeah. you thought I did that oh. on purpose or not. My wife thought I did. <laughs> it was, maybe we'll have him back on. Um, but that's all we have for you guys this week. And thank you guys for listening. Make sure to lock your doors. Keep your loved ones close. We're going to see you guys all next week. And we love you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care. Bye-bye.